sound is fine. Okay, uh, good. All right, now I got to go live on YouTube right now. Do you want me to put on my headphones? Do you care? No, I don't care. Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff After Hours, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, on this snowy, ridiculous uh, February night. I actually have a 90-foot driveway, and I, I couldn't get my car out because the snow was like piled a foot and a half high. And I went out there with my old creaky bones with a shovel, and I was able at least to get it the hell out. And then I called my landscaper with a plow, and he came to the rescue. But... Uh, I've been stuck in the house all day, which I don't mind in this type of weather. Nancy, how are you doing? I'm good. Uh, my street is pretty good on Canal Street in Manhattan, but I, I did hear a lot of cars today trying to like. The, wor the worst is digging your car out in Manhattan. The worst, right? Video this one guy in his truck just going back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> but you know, it's like it's it's going to happen. There's only snow, so many snow plows in New York City. You know. Absolutely, so. absolutely. You know, here we are, two New Yorkers, of course, we're here talking amongst ourselves, and I don't even introduce the guest to you. Ah. This is, uh, <laughs> this show is usually about real crime stories, and actually part of it will be, but Nancy Rommelman is a novelist, she's an unbelievable writer, and she's quite eclectic, in fact, she has, and she has, a, she's very opinionated also, and she has a lot of things to say, say about the state of uh, journalism, and about the state of writing today. And I think it's a fresh face because not all journalists these days are writing from the heart. They're writing almost from a script. So we're going to cover a lot of things. And I told her I'm not going to, this is not going to be a Q&A. We're just going to have a, uh, a conversation. And Nancy, one of the first things I wanted to talk to you about, Nancy, yep. was in um, 1994, yeah. you visited John Wayne Gacy, who was then on death row. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. And, you know, it's really funny, but like, you know, you and I know this name so well. Uh, and occasionally now when I tell people, you know, that I met him on death row, they're like, who? I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. He's passed in the uh, serial killer canon. Well, John Wayne Gacy um, was uh, accused of uh, and eventually executed for killing at least 33 uh, young men and boys and uh, burying them uh, in the crawl space of his home in Illinois and also a little bit close to the home. Um, I wound up on that story because I was living in LA at the time and I knew a guy who he was kind of an artist. He was in a band and he'd become pen pals with Gacy. Uh, Gacy, as some people might know, was actually quite an interesting painter. Like, um, sort of like, you know, you see, I'm not comparing their personalities, but if you see <laughs> former president George Bush's paintings, like he's actually quite a good painter. Uh -huh. Gacy was also an interesting painter and, and my, this guy, Rick, he, that I'm talking about, he had a few of his paintings. He, his name was Rick, Rick Gaez, is that how you pronounce it? Gaez, yeah. Gaez, okay, Gaez. We were like, we had mutual friends. He was like kind of a young rocker guy in LA. I think he was 25 at the time. And he 
wanted to go visit Gacy and had gotten information to visit Gacy before he died on death row. And he wanted, he thought it would make a good story. And I thought it would make a good story too. Of course, I had never written a feature article before. I was like a very, very green journalist. But I wound up selling the story to a magazine at the time called Details, made the cross country road trip. Uh, you were going from California to yep. Chicago? It was? Right, to, to Illinois, to okay. Menard, Illinois, where the, uh, the state penitentiary was and where the death row was. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I kind of didn't know what I was doing, but I kind of did it right. We kind of took the uh, emotional temperature of people crossing the country. Like, what are the college kids that we stayed with? I, you know something? I loved that fact about your story more, almost more than you meeting him. Right. Because Talking to people of how they felt about a serial killer. Right, because we're the we are the people that create the serial killer's image, right? We pay attention to it. Obviously, there are nicer things to pay attention to in this world. Absolutely. Um, but it turned out to be interesting that we did we did uh, see him on death row, and um, uh, he was executed shortly thereafter. And um, the story was my first feature. Um, I'm I'm happy with the way it turned out. People can. Um, it was actually printed before there was an internet. So a couple of years uh -huh. ago, Outfit came along and uh, asked if they could reprint it, so people can get it on Amazon now, for like on their Kindle. So um, yeah, he was actually the first person uh, where I understood what that sort of. I would call it almost like a charming sociopathy or, or psycho psychopathology is uh, very, uh, very charming, very chatty, uh, very interested in us. Yeah, kids, let's get you kids a sandwich. You know, very, sure. very, and and, and into fatigue. But that that's all part of the manipulation of someone who's a killer. You know, absolutely. But I didn't know that. I was young. It was my first story. I had not. You know, you you had you the first time you ran into people like this you you didn't know about it either and then all of a sudden you realize as you do more you know uh, investigatory work or more reporting oh this is a type you know there's a a scale and gacy was just you know the, the zenith of it you know but when I, I i'm sorry nancy i just no, want to say when i started out like um in the detective bureau and i started interviewing people and i used to watch the detectives that had the greatest skills of interviewing people and at first I would go into the room believing the guy. And then I would see how people lied and how you could tell they lied by through their body language and through things that they would say. And I would just, and I was a student of, of watching these great detectives just dissect someone's story, you know? And you as a journalist, you're doing a lot of the same things. Well, yeah, you just have to listen to them and let them keep talking. It was interesting because it's not that I ever, you know, believed John Wayne Gacy. We knew he was guilty. I mean, here was someone that could literally say to your face, I don't know why the cops say I killed him. A lot of people had keys to my house. My housekeeper had keys to my house. You know, like some small old woman is going to kill 33 men and boys and bury their bodies. But whatever. But we were there for so long, and, I, and I've said before, we'd still be sitting there with him if it were up to him. He never stopped talking. And um, by the end of it, you really could see the patois, the patois, how he, how he worked his game. Uh, and, um, you know, it was an interesting piece to write. I'm, I'm glad I got to do it. I don't really know that there were any other journalists. That, that got that kind I of just, just so some of the people listening know that I'm not familiar with John Wayne Gacy, he sure. buried 27 of these uh, young men and boys in his house, in his crawl yes. space of his house. Yes. yes. So he, was quite he, a, he was quite a sick dude, you know? Yeah, and his wife was like, what is that smell that's coming? And he's like, oh, I don't know. I think we got, you know, rats down there. I'll, I'll take care of it. 
Oh God. No, it's, did, it's, did he put lime on the bodies to kill the smell? Uh, probably. I don't, I don't remember. Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, come on, 27 bodies in the basement. Yeah. But there were some yet down there. And you know, there may be more. There he may was be like more. the precursor to Jeffrey Dahmer. Cause he was also a homosexual, right? Well, I mean, he, he was he, married though, right? He was married and he, um, he would lure these young men, uh, in, he, he did like contracting work and some construction and he'd lure them in and he'd say, Hey, let's hang in my basement. We'll go. We'll have some beers. We'll maybe we'll look at some stack films. Oh my God, I got this thing I want to show you. Look at this thing. It's this cool thing. It's these handcuffs. And you put them on and then, oh, take care. You try it. Nancy, you know, you just used the word from the way blast from the past, stag films. No one knows what they'll, it's like, you know, when I was teaching college one time, I used the word dungarees. And the kids oh, looked at me like, what are you, what, what are dungarees? My you know? parent, my mother calls them dungarees. That's right. That's right. So. I dated myself, you know, blue um, jeans. We said dungarees, to, right? It's all good. That's all um, right. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, that's, um, it's, a, it's a story that I stand by. When we, uh, when it got picked up by that little publisher, I went in and just, uh, just wrote a new little intro and cleaned up like one or two words, but it stands. I think it, it it's the it's the piece I want to write. Um, I love the part where he, uh, Gacy wanted to to know a little bit too much about your sex life. Well, yeah, he's like, "Come on, Nancy, you can tell me." Have you ever been with <laughs> yeah. I'm like, "What? Like, what? he? I mean, but you know, this guy had two weeks to live, right? And you know, I oh, he I, wanted to live life to the fullest in those last two weeks, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think he always did. I think he was. Um, I think he was voracious for, um, you know, it's interesting. I've learned this since, and I know we're going to talk about our book and a lot of other people that I've interviewed that really are uh, sociopaths. One thing that they do is they get you, first of all, they get you to believe that they really understand you and you really understand them like other people don't. I mean, right. one thing about Ricky Gaez, he really believed that Gacy cared about him. And I was like, did you ever consider, Rick, that you're exactly the profile of the people that he murdered? Right. He probably right. would have killed him if he would have yeah. come to his house. That's you right. know? Because he, I trust you. So it's like they they make you give them, and in ways that you don't understand at first, like secrets about yourself. Like maybe you admit like one time you robbed someone's house or, you know, you, you did drugs or whatever it was. Well, they're storing up that information so they can use it against you later. I absolutely promise you that oh did we lose something no no i just i'm trying to put a picture of the book oh, on the is. screen can yeah, you see yeah. can you see yeah. it now i can destination De there gacy. it is destination gacy he was not yeah. a, he was not a handsome fella <laughs> no he was pretty he was pretty portly uh yeah. and um kind of small i mean short um but yeah they so i think that's uh, gacy asking me something like you know tell me about your weird sex life or have you ever been with a girl was something that he thought you know maybe i can store this up and use it against her later well there was no later for him but he couldn't stop you know doing what he did if he was so short and portly how did he overpower the people that he killed well, like i said it was the handcuff trick was a lot of the ones he'd, he'd say look at these handcuffs look he put them on himself and he'd show them the the, the, the release button uh -huh. then they put them on he said here try them he they put them on and they were handcuffed, like he, they couldn't get out. The old and, handcuff trick. No, I don't fall for that one. Yeah, no, I'm not with the, in some of the basement, some guy I don't know. Yeah, let me, uh, try, yeah, let me try those on. And he was really, I'm actually not going to, I'm not going to go into it here. Uh, readers, obviously, if they're interested, but he was, he was terrible. I mean, he tortured people and 
he was a terrible, he was a terrible, terrible um, human who, um, for his own sicknesses, um, you know, did these things. And you know, one of the things he said too, he said, ask anything you want. I'm not ashamed of anything I've done. Well, here's the thing about Gacy, which is, which is something that I think is across the board with sociopaths. They understand right from wrong. Yes. They know it, but we're all too stupid to understand that those rules don't apply to them. They apply to us, the stupid people. And yes. they can, he can catch us up in, our, in, in these things. But him, no, 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 no. We just don't understand. Those rules don't apply to him. So psychopaths and politicians are very close, closely related. Yeah. Are we, are we going to talk about Cuomo? Yeah, we'll, 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 get to every, we'll get to everything. We'll be here for hours. Hours. You're warm, right? You got, actually, I have wine outside, but I don't like to drink during the show. So I'm just drinking water. Me neither. Me neither. But I'll, 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 I'll drink later. I'll save it okay. later on. But, you know, one of the things also is that there is such a huge fascination with serial killers. I mean, if you go on YouTube, everyone seems to have a, a show about serial killers. The Long Island one, the Gilgo Beach thing. Oh, my uh, God. There's books, there's shows, there's YouTubes. And amateurs are putting these YouTube shows and they, they think they, you know, well, they, some of them have thousands and thousands of followers. And I'm like, why would anyone listen to them? Can, you know? I, can I give one really incredible, I think the best book about that is sure. Lost Girls, Lost Girls by Robert Kolker, Bob Kolker, who I actually know, who's great, who blurbed my book, right. uh, who's a lovely guy. And his book is really, you know, there's true crime that it's like, you know, that. Yeah. <laughs> That's good sound effects you did. You must be practicing. And then that. There's, there's the stories that are really looking for. They're really looking for something else, which is what I hope I did with my book. And, and I. I uh, Lost Girls came out before I finished my book and it was so heartening to me. And I thought if I can write my book with, you know, the sort of efficacy and humanity that Bob Kolker brought to his book, Lost Girls, about the Gilbert Beach murder murders, then I will have done my job. And I, you know, I've watched, I'm sorry, I've watched some of the documentaries on that. And I think one of the themes is that the police and the detectives didn't work as hard as they would have because these were sex uh, sex workers. But isn't that right? Isn't that I don't right? know. I don't. I, mean, I, I can't say hundred percent. Look, I've I've worked on cases with prostitutes, and we worked just as hard. You know. Well, I mean, you would think because these are human beings, and especially right. they're like vulnerable human beings, right? If anything, you should want to make sure that people who, in my view, it should be legal, and let's get rid of some of the crime that you know. Right. That, that is that these girls, but but um, people, yeah. I mean, and, and hopefully that's changing. You know, as the decades go by, they're not considered so, you know, smutty or bad or anything like that. But yeah, I, I think that that's true. I think that it was like, well, it's another dead prostitute. Well, oh well, well, right. it wasn't just, wasn't it? I mean, but it was it, it, it's on its face though. It's also a very very difficult case because the bodies weren't found till a year after they were actually killed, or at least a year. Some of them even longer. Some longer. Some and longer. you know, the, the girl that was um, Shannon Gilbert mm -hmm. was running out of one of the apartments there that was actually on a, on a job. They didn't find her till after they found the initial four or five bodies. And I mean, she actually, I think, had gotten a call through to the police. Am I am I getting? Yes. That? Yeah. No, you're correct. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and it and it and they couldn't and, and had run to a neighbor's. I mean, it's just a mess. Just such a sad, sad, sad. Sad Nancy, story. could I just take a second to shout out to, there's a lot of, there's 46 people on live chat right now. I just Yay. want to shout out to some of them. 
Heartbeats, hello. Richella Pranzo, happy birthday. I won't I won't call out your age, but she's one of our biggest fans. Bill Ryan, Ryan Investigation, Mandy Hall, Sammy C. Joey from Brooklyn. What up, Joey? Joey. <laughs> Sammy C. B. Higgs. Oh, Richella Pranzo again. MJ, hi, everyone. Uh, Duty Ron is on the air. Duty, we're, Duty Ron, we're going to do tomorrow night. So don't waste, don't, don't say everything tonight. You have to save some, right? Oh, that's right. 10 uh, o'clock. I, I, I have a whole pile over here. Let's oh, okay. You got okay. all kinds of different stuff. Miley May, MJ, Dookie 4000, Moonlight View, 12 Step Woman. Uh, again, Joey from Brooklyn. Case Files Lover and Gemma's. Uh, I can't shout out to everyone, but I'll, uh, I'll keep you in mind the second round. So again, we're talking about serial killers. And yeah. we, you know, we had just gone over, uh, I did a show with uh, reti two retired first grade detectives from the NYPD on the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. Mm -hmm. And he was probably the biggest savage I've ever been, you know, read about or, or, or studied in my police career. Even in my live police career, I never saw someone as evil as that guy, you know? But yet people are so enamored with him. There were women sending nude photos of themselves to this guy when he was on death row. You know, when I was waiting to get in to visit Gacy, uh, we had, you know, we finally got into the prison and we were waiting. And, and it was really one of these like old, like stone turdy prisons, like water dripping down the walls. And we're waiting in the little um, waiting room and there are these two gals and they're death row groupies and they're in my piece. And one of them is a, she's a, big gal with a gigantic bosoms, which are like- G Gigantic breastuses? Breastuses, <laughs> he's got a big rack, okay? And they're like encased in this completely see-through top. And she's like, ah, oh, you're gonna go see John. Get John some sweets, he likes sweets. But oh meanwhile, she was going to see this other guy whose name I, his name might've been John too, across the way. And she's like, you know, she's in there. And, and you have, your, 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 your viewers have to understand, you are not, okay, we were not in a room with plexiglass. We were sitting at a little tiny school table with Gacy on the other side and us on one side. He was handcuffed. Right. But she's in the other room, like right across the hall. And there's no, the guards are outside in a, like in a buzzed out area. She's in the other room, like right across, like on his lap. Like, oh my God. Like what? There, you know, there's a lot of theories about this. It's like, well, you know, they actually feel kind of safe because the guy can't really get to them. I don't know what their pathology is. I think that maybe it, it gives them, um, they feel important and like they, maybe they're going to take care of this guy. I yeah. don't know. Duty Ron, thank you so much for the $10 super chat. Alley Cat for the $5, which is, it's so important to uh, keep us eating and keep me paying the guys that are going to shovel my uh, driveway, you know? Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, this is Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, and we have fantastic writer uh, Nancy Rommelman. Where, you know, I want to ask you, yeah. what is the derivation of your last name? Rommelman is, um, it's, so it's my dad's last name, my late father. Uh, his father was, uh, or his grandfather, or his father was uh, German and Czech. His father's father had been German. Okay. So it's, uh, yeah, I don't really know. I didn't really know that side of the family. My, my grandfather died when my dad was three. So I, I just don't really know that side of the family, but it's w true. Were you ever tempted to shorten the name? Uh, 
no, I, it's kind of a cool name. Yeah. <laughs> well, like but that, that's the famous uh, field marshal, Rommel. Rommel, right. yeah. yeah. The tank, the tank master, right? Hey, the desert fox. Yeah, so. the desert oh, fox. Oh, you I imagine you could I'm be the desert fox. That, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Would have a different meaning if you were the yeah. desert fox. Yeah, my, my husband's last name is Johnson. And when we got married, I was like, Nancy, I was already a journalist for many years. I was like, Nancy Johnson, I don't know. I just can't, just can't do it, baby. He's just like, I don't care. So yeah, that's my dad's name. Talk about some of the people that you interviewed relative to this on the way to go see John Wayne Gacy. Sure. So we, we were driving cross country. Uh, the first night we stopped in Vegas uh -huh. and it was when Vegas, there was still like an old Las Vegas. And we went to this really, really kind of great strip club uh called like the girls of glitter gulch and uh we're in there the desert fox <laughs> yeah the, the, the desert fox with the girls of glitter gulch and uh you know it's like it's big and uh, we're giving them money and we're there's apparently this there's this australian band i can't do an australian accent there the 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 hoodoo voodoos or something we're actually wound up they turn out kind of, to be kind of famous i didn't know that uh -huh. And um, just kind of talking to them about like where we were headed. And they're like, fair dinkum, blah, blah, blah. All right, so that was our first stop. Our second stop was in New Mexico at a former boyfriend of mine. He was, I guess he was in college. Um, and uh, we stayed with him and his roommates and they got really hammered and they were like yelling about how if they got Casey, they'd fuck him up and all this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> then the third night we stopped in Texas at a bar called the Shamrock Inn. Actually, it was like a little hotel. And uh, we sat at the bar and uh, this guy next to me was just basically was, the, Gacy was on TV. You have to understand, Bill. He was being executed in, yeah, two, in weeks. two weeks. Yeah, he was a so big he was story. All yeah. over the television. Yeah. And the guy sitting next to me was just sort of like a quiet Texan guy. And I, I can't remember exactly what he said. It's in the piece, but it's something like, it was something like, you know, he's still a human being. And I thought that was really important. And then the one that was pretty touching to me, the last place we stopped, I think, before we got to Illinois, we stopped in um, in Oklahoma, Okmulgee, Oklahoma, where my my daughter's dad's relatives were, full-blood Native American people, very Christian. And uh, I got up that Sunday morning and I went to early morning services at their little tiny wooden church house. And they all prayed for me. I'm, I'm actually getting all choked up now. They, they they prayed for me in Creek because they're Muscogee Tribe Creek and uh -huh. in English that my that I would you know I would be safe and that I would be able to tell this story the way it would be told. So that's a pretty pretty broad version of how people metabolized a serial killer. And, but you know um, I, I could tell from your writing that you're um, you're anti death penalty. I am anti death penalty. And, and most cops. Um, I'm not going to speak for all cops, but they're pro death penalty because sure. they see cops get killed. And then they see the people that killed these cops allegedly sentenced to life without parole. And then we're seeing 30, 35 years later. So uh, recently, an Anthony Bottoms killed two cops, got out, Cuomo paroled them. So cops are like, if he was fried 35 years ago, we wouldn't have to worry about him. Uh, getting out and, and and they're all getting out you know people that kill people don't do life in prison for the most part usually the the average seven to eight years most murderers i i've written this i don't remember in what piece but it 
I understand in the blood what it feels like to want someone to be killed for killing them because I'm a human being like anybody else. And right. um, I understand that feeling. I understand the feeling that if someone came and killed me, that my husband would go and kill him. I understand that. Right. What I, I have a hard time doing, and I can quote the defense attorney in my book. He's a capital defense attorney. and We're, we're going to get to the book. Um, he said, you know, you can't trust trust the state to keep the roads clear. You're going to trust them in someone's life. And that's where I, I, I start to have a problem. I've sat in on death penalty cases. Uh, it, they are a mess. I mean, they're really a mess in terms of, um, you know, some of it is, 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 is a benevolent mess, like they're trying to keep people alive. But it's a very, very messy process. And but you know something, Nancy, the very thing you cite is caused by the people that are anti-death penalty. And that's the, what you yes. cite of costing $90,000 a year in California to keep someone on death row. But if liberals didn't insist the guy get 14,000 appeals, seven, that's you know, that's right. seven last meals at, you know, from the most fancy restaurant in California, it wouldn't cost 90K a year, you know? And, and, and you know, it's like, well, we can't do this for another 10 years. I mean, I, I actually sat in a death penalty case in Oregon about three or four years ago where the prisoner was saying to the judge, I want this to stop. I want these, I stop. And they can't because it's the law. But I did say in the preface to the Gacy book, I'm like, you know what? If your heart and mind and morals don't tell you to be a death against the death penalty, maybe your pocketbook will, because it is definitely more expensive to keep someone, to sentence someone to death than it is to keep them in prison. Right. If you just say, you know what? Life in prison, no parole, done, it's X amount. But that's so, not a reality either though. I know, I you know? know. So it's There's like no politicians lie to us out of both sides of their mouth, you know? All I, right, death penalty, all right, life without parole. And then we got Andy in New York, parole and cop killers. And- you know, and naming bridges after his family. You know, I'll tell you what, we're gonna we'll have an encore and then we'll figure it all out for everyone, Bill. We'll just figure it out. We'll be like, no problem. Look, I fully understand the whole problem with the death penalty, but it, as I said, it's caused by the very people that are anti-death penalty because they want to put gigantic hurdles in yeah. front of yeah. putting someone to death by the state. You know. Yeah. Well. You're right. The state can't look. We, we, we can yeah. segue into different okay. subjects. The state can't do shit correctly. You're That's right. right. So you I'm know? not, I can't trust them to take a person's life. I just can't. I mean, yeah. I can't. It's, I it's so. really sad. But, yeah. uh, you know, the whole thing, though, with, uh, you know, getting back to you know, interviewing people that yeah. and, and getting their feelings on it. And, you know, and then I'm sure the elites will say, oh, most people that are uneducated are for the death penalty. You know, they do that all the time. Oh, by college degree, you know, it's like, you know, by college degree, people that have advanced degrees are against the death penalty, you know. Yeah. And I Tolstoy mean, beat his wife, you know. Yeah. I, yeah. I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I think there are plenty of people that have degrees that are, are that are for the death penalty. Um, does it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But I don't know the answer to any of this. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's going to be an I and actually, I don't think it's a question that's ever going to be. It's never going to be solved. No, it and, won't. And, you're, and you're do right. we, you know, do we want it to be solved? Yes. Now we will all agree we should have a death penalty. That's a scary thing too, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, twelve-step woman, thank you so much uh, for the five-dollar super chat. 
And uh, this is Nancy Rommelman talking about some heavy duty subjects. And, you know, what we'll get into later on is the fact that when there's no teeth in the law, that brings anarchy. And we're going to, you know, we'll get into oh, yeah. the defund the police oh, and all that oh, other yeah. stuff because yeah. it's, it makes no sense. But yet smart, allegedly smart people uh, are taking the teeth out of the law. And we're not going to talk that right now. We'll get to that later on. But okay. let's get to let's get to your book. And I'm going to hold up your sure. book. Oh, yay. Can, I, can we see it? This is To the Bridge. And the amazing thing to me about this book, I, I got three quarters through it. I'll admit okay. I didn't finish. It. I okay. got three quarters through it. And, and you're a great writer. But the the amazing thing was it, it took you seven years. Well, I could do it. But get, get, get. All right. So it's, it's, <laughs> All right. You're going to confess to something okay. here? It's, 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 yes and no. So the crime happened uh, in uh, March 23rd, uh, 2009, 23rd, 22nd. Um, and then the book was published in 2018. But, you know, I did a whole lot of reporting. I abandoned it for a while. I did some other stuff. I went back to it. And then I finally finished writing it. Then it got bought because I, I wrote it without a contract or an agent or anything, publisher. Then it got bought. And then it was like two years between it getting bought and getting published. So wow. my actual time of working on it, you know, probably four or five years. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me, here's one of the reasons for besides leather, um, besides procrastination, um, it, you know, and other work, because I've always just been a working journalist. It's, um, you're asking people to talk to you about the hardest thing that's ever happened to them in their life. The death, the murder of a child by his mother. Well, well tell, tell the audience what right. the main theme of the book that's is. They don't, they don't know. Okay. And Make Michael Marcouli, thank you so much for that $5 uh, super chat. I got to keep shouting out my- Yeah, uh, you're buying the drinks next time, That's, that's right. I will, absolutely. I'll, I'll take oh, you out I don't drinks. see any of these checks coming. <laughs> okay. So, um, so May 23rd, 2009, a woman named Amanda Scott Smith 33 years old, went to a bridge in Portland, Oregon with her four-year-old son and her seven-year-old daughter and dropped them over the side of the bridge. It was about a 90-foot fall, 53-degree water. The little boy died pretty much instantly. He drowned. And the little girl screamed and screamed and screamed until some Good Samaritans motored out on their boat and rescued her and also found her brother. Their mother was caught the next day and she was, uh, it was a capital case because it was a murder um, of a child or, you know, murder. And um, nine months, a little, nine, 10 months later, she was sentenced to um, 30 years in prison um, before the possibility of parole. Right. I heard about this story the day after it happened. And I immediately, I mean, you, you can ask my husband, he, he sees me when these stories get a hold of me. He's like, oh, there she goes. And I, I had to know how this happened and I had to know you know people are like oh because it's your you're a mother I'm like well yeah I mean I guess you know <laughs> but but here's the thing people hear these stories and they say and and if you're if your viewers are being honest they're gonna they're gonna cop to one of these two things <laughs> they either say a she's crazy or b she's evil or some combination and then what do we do we close the door because you know what mothers killing their children is a little bit of a difficult subject to unpack, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Because if we are like, oh yeah, cool, we can you know talk about this. It's just like another thing. Well, then we admit that it's something that happens, and that's that's dangerous to us. You know, if we want to take it all the way out, unspool the thread, it's like, oh, then we're just gonna, you know, hu humankind is gonna be extinguished if we, if we allow mothers to do this. Anyway, I was not satisfied with either of those answers. I 
do not believe that anything comes out of the blue. And especially a mother does not wake up in the morning and go, you know what? I think, I don't know. I think at like 1.32 this morning, we'll bring the kids to the bridge and drop them off. Right. You know, just like, I'm going to take a yoga class at seven and then I'm going to like bring the kids to the bridge and drop them off. So I needed to know how this happened. And it turned out to be, as these things are, uh, a complicated story. A story that people had been trying not to tell themselves for decades, meaning families that protect the bad behavior of others, protect their reputations, uh, don't want to talk about the fact that you know one of the people in their family is running through hundreds of thousands of dollars or is a drug addict because everybody wants to look fine, everything's going to be nicey nice. But then, Nancy, that's one of the things, though, you'll find out, and most parents, too, when one of their children are, are a drug addict or an alcoholic, they sometimes enable them, right? Enable oh. them to do that. And when they go through it to the, to the, till it plays out, they're told by professionals, no, you have to let that person hit bottom. Stop helping him or her. That's Stop right. helping them. Let them hit bottom. That's the only time they'll start to get help and get better. It's very hard, though, Bill. I don't know. Yeah, yeah no, I, uh, look, yeah, right? I, know, I know a lot about the human condition, and yeah. obviously so do you, but I'm just yeah. letting our fans know in case you don't know about yeah, the human condition. In case you don't condition. know, let them hit bottom. And it's also more than that. It's like, you know, in, in, in my case in the book, this one, you know, one member of this family had a lot of money and was very, very domineering and was very concerned with her reputation looking good and was very concerned with um, making everything right and also telling everyone what to do. So she was not gonna let her son fail. In fact, she tried, this is, this is the father of the children. Um, she in the past had tried to let him fail and then he just, you know, he was a very charming sociopath. I don't wanna give away too much of the book, but yeah. um, he was able to charm people. And, uh, and, and the mother who did it, who of course is the, is the guilty party, but she had help getting there. She also had a very religious family uh, and an extremely religious pastor who was like, go home and obey your husband, right. which when you've got a husband doing the things that he was doing was absolutely putting her in an impossible bind. Plus she had her own narcissism. Just so you know, real crime stories, we don't uh, expect obedient wives. <laughs> yeah, well, she certainly wasn't that. Um, anyway, it was a, it was a, it was quite an odyssey. Um, and for me, as sort of the, you know, in the book, uh, the book is told sort of on a few tracks. Um, you're, you're, you're kind of um, in the scene, and then you're also coming with me as I discover the story. So the story is kind of blossoming on on two tracks at the same time. And um, I, I set out to tell the story I wanted to tell. So. Yeah, I mean, also, as you're in a case like this, in a book like this, you're an investigative reporter because people do not want to speak to you, and especially oh, no. about this. So, to get people to speak to you, you got to get documents that will back up things that you will already know. For example, well, I'm sure you got a, probably a lot of the documents through FOIL, right? Well, should I admit this? I, I am going to admit this, but I, I can't exactly tell the, the name of the person. So uh, I was able, there were certain, uh, I was not able to get things through FOIA that I wanted. I, I tried, but I was not able to. Um, there were certain uh, departments that were great. Uh, the health department, the sheriff's department, they were really terrific and gave me things that I needed. Mm -hmm. Who would not give me what I needed? 
who who do you think though? Getting, getting, what department didn't want to give me what I wanted? Yes. The police. The police department. <laughs> okay. Now they stole <laughs> you forever. They would not. They stalled me forever. And I yep. did so many ways. I tried so many roundabout ways. And I had basically pretty much almost finished the book. And there was someone that I had had contact with um, during the course of the writing of the book. And uh, he he knew me and trusted me at this point. I had definitely proven myself. And I guess he just took pity on me. <laughs> and he gave me, he gave me the police. They're about 500 pages. And um, they were invaluable to me finishing the book. In fact, the whole kind of last part of the book, even though I knew a lot but, of it. Already- but Amanda Stott Smith also, uh, she, before this happened, she drew the attention of child welfare. Oh, yes. Well, um, they both had, both she and her husband had right. uh, for many years, um, both because they had been abusive for, to the children mm-hmm. uh, and abusive to each other, uh, physically abusive to each other. Um, but as the years went by, um, the husband started to absent himself from the household and she was declining into further alcoholism and unable to her own pathologies were were making her were making her a very bad mother, right. and um, you know ultimately the worst kind of mother. <laughs> so you actually um, in the book it was interesting how you had to you described the actual bridge mm-hmm. and how she must have had to walk up to the bridge, mm-hmm. uh, not drive her car because it wasn't big enough to leave the car there unless she just stopped the car, threw them out the window, and got back in the car. So she must have walked them to the well, bridge. Well, you got to get to the third part of the book. Oh, okay. So I, I didn't finish that <laughs> up yet. I admitted to only reading three well, quarters right. of it. So, so we, we st- what we do um, is we start the book. The book opens with the crime. You see the crime. Right. You, you, you get what you can from what I give you. And then when we get to part three, we go back to the crime. And I this is an interesting way. It's probably... Kind of a I don't know traditional, but uh, you know it's not that unusual way to tell tell the story again with what you now know, and right. so you're basically seeing through new lenses. Uh, and so it's, it's like Pulp Fiction start start at the yep. end of the movie, right? Yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> how does and, that so how does that somehow work? You know, it's crazy. Well, right? you have to be you have to spool out your information carefully, right. uh, and um, but you know it's interesting the the. I guess it was hard, you know, you write, it's sort of like they say like childbirth, like you do it and it's hard, but then you forget. I, yeah, the book, I guess was hard to write, but eh, then you do it, so. Who gave you the most uh, information? Was it the attorney of um, Amanda? Uh, you know, there were so many people that gave me information in different ways. Uh, Amanda's attorney in some ways, but oh, actually I do know the answer to this. Amanda's grandmother. She Amanda's gave you the most information. Amanda's grandmother. Oh my God, Jackie Drilling. I'm actually going to get all choked up here and I'm sorry, forgive the fire engines in the background. I live next door to the firehouse. Um, <laughs> Jackie Drilling and Amanda's family, they couldn't talk about what she'd done. They just couldn't. It was just, it was too horrific. So after it happened, they dealt with the legal stuff. They closed the door and that was it. It was never discussed again. Well, Jackie, Amanda's grandmother, who was late seventies at the time and and kind of, didn't really leave the house that much. She needed to talk about it. And she got me a message. It was crazy. I met her at this boat dedication for the kids. And I, and I had heard she wanted to speak to me. And I went up to her. I was like, hi, I'm Nancy Rommelman. I 
I hear you wanted to chat with me. And she gave, she was like, Ugh. and I was like, what? Okay. And now then, you know what it's like to be a cop. <laughs> yeah. But then a few days later, she, she said to the woman who was our intermediary, she's like, give me Etsy my information. And so she was, and also um, Amanda had an older son, Gavin, and his stepmother, Chelsea, uh, was very, very helpful to me. Uh, and, and, and through her anger, uh, obviously. I mean, there were some people that are just absolutely heartbroken and destroyed by this and other people who are um, so enraged. But Bill, I didn't tell you something. So, I'm going to tell you now. Okay. This is amazing. This is amazing. <laughs> right before the book was coming out, it was about six weeks from publication. I was getting on a plane and I opened my phone and there was a message. That, I saw the subject line email and it said, I need to talk to you about your upcoming book about Amanda Stott-Smith. Okay, let me tell you something. This is not what the nonfiction writer wants to see six weeks from publication. Right, like, right. Oh my God, I got something so terribly wrong. I'm just, I'm, I'm doomed. And I can't actually answer because I'm getting on a plane. Mm -hmm. So I get to where I'm going and I open it up and it is from the child that Amanda Stott Smith gave up at birth. Wow. He had somehow found out that my she was 18, had found, oh no, 16, something, had found out my book was coming out and knew nothing about her mother, had never met her, and wanted me to fill her in about her. So I went and visited with her in Arizona and I wrote about it and I will send you a link to the piece because wow. this is truly stranger than fiction. If someone had said, Oh yeah, this woman who, this young woman whose mother killed and tried to kill her siblings is now reaching out to you, Nancy Rommelman, to find out about her mother and her siblings and maybe put you in touch with them. Anyway, it's a pretty good piece. <laughs> well, you know something, that's, I mean, when you think about a girl like that, 16 years old, never met her mother and her mother's a murderer that killed a four-year-old boy and tried to kill a seven-year-old mm -hmm. girl. I her mean, siblings, perhaps. Yeah, her siblings. How, how do you get over that? How, you know? Well, it again, interesting. <laughs> I'll read it. I, I will I, read I will, it. I will, it's short. I published, I published it on, uh, on that website, Medium. I didn't wait. I was going to publish it with a different magazine, and it didn't work out. And I just, I just wanted to get it out into the world. And it ran, it ran two years ago this month, actually. I'll, I'll send you a copy. I was very, um, you know, you say you can't really remember if writing was hard. That was a hard story to write. Yeah. It, it was uh, complicated, but but you anyway. know what's amazing? It, it also shows the um, the resiliency of the human spirit. Like oh, she man. needed for some reason to find out and maybe close some kind of door she has in her brain uh, in regards to that. And she she confronted it instead of letting it just eat at her forever. You are a smart man. She needed to be seen. Yeah, she needed to be seen, and then once seen she could make her decisions. It was very interesting. She, I was very, it was not what I expected. You know, in the, uh, I'll re reference again, the, uh, that documentary. And if you haven't seen it yet, I, I definitely think you, could, you should see it. The Night Stalker on uh, Netflix. It's about Richard Ramirez, but there was a six-year-old girl that he actually kidnapped and put her in a duffel bag, brought her to his lair. I'll call it his lair. It was his home. And she described how, you know, evil it looked. And he did all kinds of sexual things to her. And then when he was done with her, he 
took her out and said, here, I'm going to drop you off here. Call your parents, have them pick you up. And it was like, but this girl was interviewed for the show. And she's now, I would say, in her 20s. She has a family. And she was so amazing because she said, what happened to me was horrible. She goes, but I didn't want him to be able to define the rest of my life because of those horrible things that he did to me. And okay. I was like, you wanted to like cry when she said that. You know, well, like, you know, we do, I think, you know, we do have choices, right? We can decide um, who's going to decide our lives for us in, in that sense. Like if, if someone, you know, does something really bad to you, like emotionally or rips you off or abuses you, it's like, all right, now you've survived. How much you want to drag? How much do you want to drag that around? You know, uh, hopefully you get to decide. Hopefully it didn't. You know, you're not maimed, or or even if you are, right. you know, you get to decide. And she decided. Oh, so it's almost like you know when you carry a grudge. Right. When you carry a grudge, the other person wins because That's you're right. walking around in a state of being mad about something that you know, and it's it's going to hurt you more than it hurts that other okay, person. Put it down. Leave it in the road. Right. Let it go. Yeah. Let it go. Right. I tell you, I really admire you, uh, the, the investigative work you do uh, to, to do this type of writing. And I think, you know, all cops uh, that have had really good police careers always think, oh, I want to write. I want to write because we have such great stories. But yeah. then when you realize you can't write in the way that you do, I mean, we could write, but, you know, you probably to be a really good writer, you have to work very hard at it. I write a lot. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. You know, every writer will tell you, they'll look back at the stuff they wrote 20 or 30 years ago and they're like, oh my God, this is horrible. But you know, you learn, it's like anything. You're either a swimmer or a painter or a detective. Like you get, you hopefully get better. You get it. better at it, yeah. I was yeah. working on a piece all day this morning that I still haven't finished. And I, I, it looks so bad this morning, Bill. I was like, I'm never gonna be able to do this. But I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you say that every time. So just keep working at it. And you learn, you know, you learn to be clear, you know, and if you can be clear, then, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll get it across and it'll hopefully I don't know, make an impact or people enjoy reading it or whatever. And you grew up uh, on Montague street in Brooklyn Heights well, in the seventies. Is that I correct? Grew, I grew up near Montague street. I grew up. You know why that, that, that street rings a bell because it's in the song tangled up in blue by Bob oh, Dylan. Oh, I have a friend of mine. So a friend of mine and I, Oh, everybody watching here should go. Um, I've got a new little media venture. I'm starting with my buddy, Matt Welch. Uh, we, you can go to YouTube and uh -huh. find the Paloma Media, or you can go to Twitter, it's at Paloma Media, but he's always reminding me, he's like, oh yeah, I always remember that because that song reminds me of you, because of Montague Street. That's um, a great, I like the song, but it's, he has so many damn verses, it like oh, tells a whole... Oh, I the very end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's right, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't listen to the last two verses, I'll, I'll I get to up, it. <laughs> I grew up a, a block from Montague Street, which almost every single block in Brooklyn Heights is a block from Montague Street. Um, I did grow up there, I wrote a little... Uh, little memoir i mean it's it's literally like 25 pages that's also on amazon called the queens of Montague street and uh -huh. uh, that got excerpted in the new york times a bunch of years ago and uh yeah you know it was the mid late 70s i was a teenager and brooklyn heights was very different back then you might you might remember it was you know it always was sort of like a little bit hoity toy with the yeah. fantastic architecture and the and the well, it was made famous for the people that are from other states and other countries that are listening. It was made famous in that movie with Cher, uh, Moonstruck. Oh, Moonstruck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is before then even. You had a lot of, like, you had a big, you know, you had, I don't know, I remember there were, like, boarding houses run by, like, my my Puerto Rican boyfriend's grandmother, who, like, the guys <laughs> would sit out there with their, you know, wife beaters on, and, like, yeah. and there were, like, gay bars on Montague Street, and it was, um, 
it was kind of mixed up. Like it was, and very arty, you know, Norman Rostin lived there and, and, and Truman Capote had lived there. It was a, it was a, you know, of course I'm a kid and it's just the place where you live. But right. then when you get older, you realize, oh, it was kind of textured, pretty, pretty interesting, pretty colorful. Yeah. So people might like it. It was about me getting in a lot of trouble. So, you know, if you like young teenage girls getting in trouble, you'll love it. It was probably a great place to live, I would imagine, you know. People can read for themselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I lived in, when I first came on a police department, I lived in Greenwich Village uh, on Barrow Street. Which is the, I was born and raised. Yeah, a blue, blue Mill Tavern. I lived. Oh, wait, uh, okay. oh, my God. My dad worked there. He was a bartender and a waiter at the Blue Mill. No I kidding. Lived I lived in the building 77 right next door. Okay. Wait a minute. This is insane. My grandmother lived at 77 Barrow Street. No my way. Anna Innocenti, she lived there till she died in 1981. And I, I think it was 77. That's right across the street from the No, Blue no, 77 is right on the same side. It's oh, right on the okay. same side. She lived across the street yeah. where the, that little like garden area. Yeah, yeah I know what you're talking okay. about. Yeah. She lived there. And then we lived right next door to the Blue Mill when I was little. Uh, and my dad worked there. Yeah, and then Chumley's is right up the street. The Chumley's Chumley's. I know, it's crazy. You know, in the the history of New York City, I was a bartender at Pete's Tavern on 18th and Irving before I came on the police department. Okay, first of all, my mother used to hang out when she and my dad got to work. (laughs) She hung out at Pete's Tavern. Second of all, my parents courted at Chumley's. Wow. Wow, that's crazy. Barrow Street is the most, that corner, I should tell, if if your viewers don't know, the corner of Barrow and Commerce is the most beautiful corner. Cherry Lane Theater. My dad worked. My dad worked <laughs> at Cherry Lane Theater. He, Cherry Lane Theater. You know, when I took the sergeant's corner. test, a bunch of guys, uh, like four or five guys, we all took beach chairs and we pu- pulled over right on Barrow Street and we were all sitting there just drinking our ass off because we were so happy it was over and we all passed the test and the cops came by and they were like, we were just, what are you doing? Yeah, we're drinking, leave us alone. All right, I'll give you a little bit of Barrow Street lore. So my dad grew up there on Barrow and um, right across the street, he, his grandma, his mother was Italian, all the relatives lay, lived there. Uh-huh. And right across the street lived Marlon Brando and his roommate at the time, which was Wally Cox. Oh, wow. And Marlon Brando had a motorcycle. So my dad was born in 35. So this must have been about 45, 44. Marlon Brando gave them all rides on his motorcycle. Wow. So Pretty that cool. Gave all the neighborhood kids rides on his motorcycle. So well, I used to go to Jimmy Day's on uh, West 4th. And uh, well, that was famous because they threw jo- John Lennon out. He was acting like an ass and they actually tossed his ass out of the bar. I forget who he was with. He was with some other musician, but it was another Greenwich Village was law. Was a jazz club? Was Jimmy Day's a jazz club? No, no. It was just a regular bar, but it was a great it's bar. Still, it was, it was one. Of, in fact, one of the owners of Coogan's, which just closed, Dave Hunt, used to tend bar at Jimmy Day's back oh, in the God. day in the 70s, you know? I want the bars to open, man. I know. Doesn't uh, suck all these great bars that are closing. So, Nancy, we got to move towards... Uh, wrapping it up here. Yeah, well, no, not wrapping up, but the greatest topic I saved for last. Oh, well, and that's your time. your five months going yeah. undercover with Antifa in Portland. Well, no, no. <laughs> well, it was pretty much you weren't like advertising you were Antifa. There you go. You're 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 selling it, Bill. Um, yeah, I'm selling. Know. I'm trying to get our fans to you know realize okay. who you are here. So they, what they should do is they should go to Reason.com, Reason Magazine. I think it's one of the best, if not the best, magazine going these days. Uh, you can go online, reason.com, and type in my name, and you will find a whole bunch of writing I've done for them over the years, including 
14 stories from Portland. I was sitting, you know, I lived in Portland from 2004 to 2019. Uh Last summer, I was sitting in, again, my, mentioned my buddy, Matt Walsh, who I'm doing Paloma Media with him and uh, a guy named um, Jake Siegel, great, great journalist for Tablet Magazine. We're having some drinks. And Jake says to me in this great gravelly voice he has, Nancy, what the fuck is going on in Portland? <laughs> and uh, Matt's like, yeah, Nancy, you got to go out there. So I, Matt used to be editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine. Uh, he, he's still editor-at-large there. Uh, the next morning, I text my editor, the editor-in-chief, Catherine Mangu Ward. I was like, I want to go. She's like, go. So I went and I wound up going four times um, over the course of from July to November and reporting on what was going on. Like, being in the streets, being inside the protesters, getting up at five in the morning to see who was still around, talking to the cop, or she actually wasn't a cop, but she works with the Portland Police Department. You know, she checks in some of the inmates in the main police station downtown. And on May 27th, when the protesters broke in and set a fire, she's locked down in the basement and what that was like. I also talked to like some of the black block kids and like how they felt about certain things. And, you know, while they could be total, sorry, dicks when they're in a mob one-on-one as is uh, the tell, uh, tell the people listening what the black block people okay. are so antifa which we hear about antifa which is sort of you know they're you know they call themselves anti-fascist well anyone that's pro-fascist is a, is an idiot but they're what they really are is they're anti whatever it is that they don't like and what they don't like now are the police they don't like the government they don't like like the mayor. They uh, they're certainly they proclaim at least when I was in Portland with them to be very pro Black Lives Matter, and I'm sure that they are. But they've also hijacked that whole experience and cause in order to justify themselves getting out the, in the streets every night and busting shit up and setting fire to stuff. Um, weren't you the one that told me the other the other day that you had gangs that you you nicknamed the um, FSU gang. Oh yeah, no, in the three two, yeah, fuck shit up. They had a gang called Fuck Shit Up. Yeah. So there's a lot of yeah that that those gangs are in Portland, and um. (laughs) Oh, it's the national chapter. They have to pay their dues to the people in East in uh, Central Harlem. They're part of the national chapter, and um, I was able to I think do some reporting that we didn't really see on the protests. What we've seen, and you can tell me if you think this is right. You know, if you go to Fox. Uh, you get, you know, savages are coming to your town. <laughs> and if you go to CNN, you get, you know what? These are peaceful protesters and they have to have their rights. And, you know, there, there are little bits of all of that that's right. What I don't really understand why it is so incredibly difficult for people to wrap in their brains that you have peaceful protesters and that's awesome. And then you have the non-peaceful protesters, which are a small group, but they can do a lot of damage and demand a lot of attention. For right. some reason, people that are pro-peaceful protest, and I really don't know why you wouldn't be pro-peaceful protest, they feel like if they admit that that other part exists, then it, it tarnishes the whole experience, which it doesn't. But when you pretend those people that are lighting up the police union hall every night, lighting it on fire, when you pretend that they're not doing any damage. And when you won't arrest them for doing that, you got a problem. Portland has a big problem right now. But okay? you know, Nancy, one of the things that I find so ridiculous about all this is that I think it's part of government's role is to protect its citizenry. And when they are unwilling 
are unable to do that, they shouldn't be in their office anymore. Because look, people that just go out and they want to hurt other people that are going about their lives, working, paying taxes, doing what they do. How does the government allow people to, to you know, just like oh, over the summer when you saw people uh, getting in people's faces that were out to dinner and they would eat their food or, you know, like, how is that okay? How is that peaceful protesting? You know? It's not okay. It's not okay. But the problem was, I think, I mean, I can't go through the problems of every generation and when these movements, you know, take hold going back to this, you know, the French Revolution. Um, but I can tell you that in Portland and in Oregon, um, the seats of power in Salem and in Portland proper, which makes up the majority of the population of Oregon, is extremely liberal. And I, I don't have a problem with this. I consider myself a liberal in many ways, or you know, center liberal. Um, but they became very, very exercised about Trump, very, very, very angry. And they became part of the CNN watching tribe that everything was Trump's fault. And if everything was Trump's fault, then it couldn't be their fault. So, and when Trump sent it the feds, which look, let's be frank, he didn't roll it out great. And they right. also didn't cover themselves in glory. All right, so they, there were certain legs they could stand on. Well, okay, let's give you that maybe taking people into unmarked vans ain't a great, the optics are not great. Okay? Right, but you know something on both sides, I mean, I think, uh, Biden was asked about Antifa and he said, oh, it's an idea. He didn't yeah, even well, admit this, this is, that they is, actually right. exist, you know? Well, but again, again, I think that's reactionary. I think because Trump went in and overplayed it, he said, yeah. oh, it's this national organization and they're organized, which they're not. Then you've got Biden underplaying it. I'm going to come back to the idea of why you can't look. I have no problem holding in my brain at the same time that if Trump wanted to send in the feds, he could have done a better job of it. And the fact that you had these Antifa, oh, and Black Bloc are basically sort of the violent arm of Antifa, but basically right. in Portland, they're a bunch of 22 year old kids that put on black clothes, black bike helmets, they carry umbrellas or collapsible batons or nothing. And they get out and they sloganeer and they get in your face. They know how to fuck shit up because it's, it's just like when you have children, small children, they're great at baking stuff, breaking stuff, but they don't want to build anything. So right. these youngsters get out there. They, I've written this before. It's COVID. Schools are closed. Maybe they lost their jobs. They're not allowed to leave the house. The bars are closed. The music venues are closed. They can't do anything. Oh, but you know what they can do? They can go out every night, be with their crew, fuck shit up, and save the world. Right. That's what but when you, when you say that, I find this hard to believe when you say that they're not organized. Because in New York City, uh, and I know this has been referenced before, they were delivering pallets of bricks to the uh, protesting sites. And that doesn't happen without organization. Okay. When they're coming, hold on, let me finish. When they come to a protesting site in buses, who paid for those buses? How did they know about these buses? You know what I mean? When they all dress in black, who's telling them to all dress in black? Well, that, that, that's been going on for a long time because it disguises you, right? People that are going to behave badly do not want their faces seen. Right. Um, there, you are absolutely right. There is organizations, there's cells, right? And they, you know, you're with your, um, what's it called? Your um, something group. 
I'll, I'll remember the name of it. So yes, there is. And so you're with your groups and then there are certain ways where you find out what's going on. What I, what I meant to say is it's not a national organization, right. right? That's so that everybody's coordinating together. And that's sort of deliberate from what I understand. Like you don't want people knowing what you're doing. What that's also created. Oh, you know, cause they could hit, they could hit them with Rico. That's right. They could. And that's maybe right. that's why, that's but right. I was also baffled during these six or seven months of these riots why the FBI didn't have any major investigations on these groups and, and including Black Lives Matter, because there was no they could Rico these people. And I, I heard nothing about it, which I find curious, because when one side is almost cheering them on and the other side is saying, well, those, these guys are terrorists. You're right. There's somewhere in between. They have to come together. But I couldn't believe that some people were even denying that what they were doing was criminal. Well, you had, first of all, you, at the beginning, at least, you had people sympathetic. I mean, I marched in the streets among these, these groups, and they were marching through one particular street shouting that the people on this street, these are residential streets, um, were gentrifiers, and Black people used to live there. And you had people, white couples on the porch, yay, yay, young people, yay, young people spreading your message. Okay, well, I get it. They want to be supportive. You also have people that are afraid to go against, you know, they're like, I don't want to make any noise. I want to just have my life, take my kid to tennis lessons or soccer practice and not, I'm not political. Well, that's changed a bit. It started changing when, you know, they're, they're going through the streets at night with lights and shining it in your windows and shouting, get up, get up, get up, motherfucker, get up. And I have to tell you, and I've written this before in 2019, we had my daughter's dad living with us. I, I was still living in Portland and uh -huh. my daughter's dad was living in the house with my husband and me. My daughter came in from her Nor New York. Her husband came because her dad was dying of cancer and he did die of cancer. And we you know, took care of him at home. He died at home. But I gotta tell you, if those people had been marching past my house at midnight, shining a light in his window, it's not gonna work, okay? Right, right. Uh, and, I, and, and I think at a certain point, you know, Portland is a pretty, liberal and leftist town. I don't think a lot of people have guns in their homes, but at a certain point, and we're already kind of seeing this, someone's going to be like, you know what? Fuck this shit. And that's not going right. to be- Right, there's, there's going to be pushback. And, and there's going to be pushback. And then they're going to, then the, the protesters are going to have a better leg to stand on. See, we're getting murdered in the streets. It's like, yeah, but guys, right. guys, stop, stop annoying people look this isn't kent state you know it's not kent state but they and they're you know the whole thing about even not letting the police police is crazy yeah. you know like in new york city i'll give you a perfect example they had a black lives matter took the brooklyn bridge and they were all marching off the brooklyn bridge and the police used a technique that's called kettling yeah i know kettling. and they split them up ingeniously you know it's a, it's a tactic and they got they got shit for it. Guess yep. what? We're not going to tell you our tactics before we're going to use them because they work. You know, same thing. There was another instance in New York City. There was a protest and the warrant division scooped some guy out of the protest who was wanted. And all the politicians, even the mayor criticized it. It was a textbook arrest. But that's, it's the kind of crap that when I as a cop, a retired cop, see it. And I'm like, how can they win? They can't even do their job correctly, you know. Cops are not being allowed to do their jobs. Again. No, uh, they've had um, they've had certain monies taken away. Now, look, I, I, I we're not going to first of all, we're not going to get into a, a discussion about police unions. Number one, because I don't know enough about it. Okay. Number two, 
there can be improvements in any organization, right? Absolutely. Um, um, so anyway, I, 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 I don't know what the answers to these things are. Well, but- you know, some, look, the history of, of um, responding to riots and disorder control uh, goes back to Rodney King. You know, that was uh, yeah. one of the yeah. biggest, uh, you know, caused the biggest riots, one of the biggest I riots over LA that. Yeah. And was there for the riots. And because of that, most police departments across the nation trained to how to better respond to a riot. I mean, that idiot, Reginald Denny, he was a famous truck driver. Yeah. He got hit in the head with a can. Yeah, yeah. They beat, you know, yeah. he actually almost had brain damage, but yeah. he drove into the riot area. Any good policing should preclude letting cars or trucks drive into the riot area. They have Why to did block. he do that? By accident? No, no, well, because no one told him that, you know, uh, hey, this okay. riot zone, no one hung up signs yeah. saying, yeah, you want a riot, come in here. But that was part of the things that the police had to learn. And we had a um, chief in NYPD, his name was uh, Louis Animo, who was the chief of the department. And he studied disorder control all over the world and watched how they did it all over the world. And he sort of became the guru on how to respond to riots and disorder. And all of those things that they learned and he brought to the department was forgotten about once the mayor says, I want a soft touch. You know, now you can't, de Blasio, you know. Oh my God, I can't stand him. I can't, I can't. I I don't even understand how someone could be as bad at his job. But you know something, the New York City electorate deserve who they vote for. And they they, they voted them in twice. They He's voted Cuomo in three times. He's going on four times, you know? I heard that Andrew Yang is running, you know, he's got COVID. Does he really? Yeah, yeah I got, he has COVID. That's crazy. So yeah. tell us about some of the, uh, about even you tried to take pictures at some of these riots. Oh, yeah. And- this has been interesting. Actually, of all the stories I wrote for Reason, again, you go to reason.com and type in my name. The one that got, I think, the biggest response was in uh, late August, early September, um, when I wrote about how the story was being disseminated because most of the country would see occasional photos of you know rioters acting really badly. But mostly what we saw were police acting kind of bad. Like, you know, whether it was like, you know, pummeling people with sticks or, you know, tear gassing them or whatever it is. And right. um, I was like, well, there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is that the people on the ground, the black block kids, the people that are causing the mayhem, which is a very, very small minority of the protesters between maybe two and 600 people, mm-hmm. they're controlling the narrative. And the way they do that is they get different people that have like press, they put just like Jimmy Olsen in the old uh, Superman, <laughs> they put like a press thing in their hat. Yeah, yeah. Or they have like the young girls that put medic across their chest and they all have their little roles. And now you know that they're on your side, meaning they want the demonstrators, rioters, protesters, whatever you want to call them, they want them to look good. So the only pictures they're going to take of them are them setting up the place where they rinse out people's eyes, or here we are giving out ribs, um, here we are um, being besieged by the police. So that's what they photograph. Anything else, they don't photograph. If you photograph it, I was photographing everything. I was photographing right. the, these people, those people, they don't want that. So what they do is they stand in front of you. They put their umbrellas in front of your, they put their hands in front of you. They steal your phone. They stole my phone. They threaten you. Not, I wasn't threatened very often. I got threatened by one wacko uh, that he said he was going to kick my ass. He had a baton. 
I had a couple other people say, oh, you know, we know who you are. Um, they never want their picture taken. They're like, photography equals death. You're like, could you explain that? Can you explain that to me? No, they can't explain it, Bill. It's just something that they shout. They don't know what they're talking about because they're 20. Um, well, you know, you, in another interview, you used a, a really cool term, I thought, and you called it collective effervescence. <laughs> effervescence. Yes, they have this collective effervescence. They're yeah. all out there doing these things together, but they don't want you interrupting their narrative. So when right. you take the pictures, they either A, prevent you from doing it, B, I had this happen multiple times, including by journalists in Portland, they published my picture. Stay away from her. She's a fascist. She's right wing. She's against you. I'm like, I'm not, I am? I am not. Um, um, and they, they make sure, they try to make sure that anything anyone else photographs that's not to their narrative doesn't get shown. And then they flood the airwaves with their own stuff. And it's picked up. It's picked up by CNN and MSNBC. I had people pick up my stuff too. Um, BBC and I did interviews with people. But for the most part, they're successful in controlling the narrative. And the narrative is the cops are bad and we are being besieged. So anyway, that, that piece seemed to strike a chord with people. They're like, wow, now I know why I'm seeing what I'm seeing. But so, is, isn't a journalist, doesn't a journalist want to report what's actually happening and not? Oh, Bill. No, I know, I know I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm purposely playing devil's advocate and acting naive. Well, but isn't know, that supposed to be? I, okay. So they, they, I 100% believe in reporting what I see. Now, um, are people going to have biases? Sure. Are, are, are they some of them unconscious? Yes, of course. Um, but I'm going to show you what I'm seeing. I'm going to put it together in the most honest way that I can and hopefully leave a little air between the lines as a, a editor of mine used to say, so that you can come to some decisions yourself. I have no interest in conclusionary journalism, in, in pre-deciding what the story is, what my publication wants. Now, look, if I work for, um, you know, I don't know. I don't really, I've never seen OANN, but I, I understand they're pretty conservative. Yes. If, I, if, I write, if I wrote for them or I, I wrote, I would, want, I would be steering my stories that way. I was actually on Fox News for the first time last week. I, I did a, a hit for them. Did and, they did they hang upside down in the closet before they, they interviewed you? They did, actually, you know what they did? They they pulled a van up right on my corner. This gorgeous news van. I just went wow. down, and sat in it, and there was like a picture of a cityscape behind me. And um, the host was terrific. He was really nice, and he said a few things like, "Well, you know," he wasn't leading me, but he was like, "Isn't it like this?" And I was like, "Well, you know, it's kind of like that." Like, I'm going to tell you what I think. I'm not there to parrot what your narrative is. We might even disagree. And how great would that be? Right, right. Because now maybe you can, just like the death penalty, you can give me something that you've experienced and know about, and I give you something. Um, that is not the game for sure that a lot of the journalists in Portland are playing. They were very, very, very pro uh, the, the um, protester sides, even the violent ones, and literally put my picture online and said right. she's the enemy, which I found to be I found to be so juvenile and reprehensible. Except like, that also puts your life in danger. It you really know, does. They, they told me that I was putting their, okay, I swear on my daughter's head. I was told <laughs> that I was putting their lives in danger by photographing what was going on. I was like, well, if you're not do, doing anything wrong, how are you? It was just, it was just ridiculous. Um, 
But anyway, I do. Nancy, can we just touch upon, I because I know we don't have that much time left. We've already been here almost an hour and 15 minutes. But I wanted to ask, when you take the teeth out of the law and there's no prosecutions on people doing arsons, basically arson is a very, very serious crime. You know, it's it's very serious. In fact, I think arson first degree is a B felony in New York State, which you know, qualifies you to 12 and a half to 25 years in prison. In fact, in New York City, they had these two attorneys toss the Molotov cocktail into a police oh, yeah, vehicle. Yeah. Oh, I know that you know? story. I know and that story. it was empty, thank God. But yes. what were they thinking? Like, what were they thinking? Okay, they were thinking the ends justify the means, which they never do. As my next tattoo, the ends never justify the means. <laughs> okay, never, never. You tell yourself you're right, and in order to, you know, you just gotta, you just gotta do this one little thing. Right. But you would never, ever allow that one little thing to be done to you. And when that starts happening, then you have a war, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I started, uh, I know they started going out to Long Island. They actually went to Merrick, Long Island, which is an affluent Jewish community, and there was uh, uh, supposedly there was going to be some. They were going to torch the stores and stuff. I don't know how they kept it that they didn't, but I had also heard that a whole contingent of uh, uh, retired cops were not going to let that happen. No, they shouldn't. And, um, well, yeah. you were asking how they take the teeth out of the law in Portland. You know, you had a new DA that came in in August. He wasn't supposed to come in until December, but the guy that was leaving basically said to him, you know what, this is going to be your problem, so you do it now. And he came in, he was very liberal, very sympathetic to the protesters in air quotes and said, you know what, we're not going to have protest related crime that include, you know, property crime, arson, harassment, uh, interfering with an arrest. We're not going to make those crimes so we can focus on more violent crimes. Wait a minute. So, so if you're John Q or Nancy Q business owner and they come by and torch your business that you've worked your whole life to build. That's okay. I mean, well, uh, now let me just say what we've seen for the most part has not been that extreme. What they do is they break a window, they set a little fire. They're not there. It's not like conflagrations, but yes, it's okay. And they're not prosecuted. They, yeah, but little, little fires become big fires, you know. Well, they can. And, yeah. um, there, there was a woman, a really good reporter. I interviewed her on my, I have a Substack. People can go read over at Substack. I interviewed her the other day, Hannah Ray Lambert with Coin TV in, in Portland. And she did a study and of a thousand arrests between May and October, 9% resulted in charges sticking. Yeah. So. See, even without, even without not talking about the rioting and all of that with COVID in New York City, there's no grand juries and there's no trials. So all of these felony cases are basically, you know, what are they at the end of this when COVID is finally eradicated, if it is in the next year or two, are they going to forgive all of these felony cases? I wonder, Bill, it'd be interesting for someone to write a piece that sort of tries to understand how, COVID contributed to all of the violence in the street we've seen and also the sort of um, the sort of uh, erasing of policure. It's, it's an interesting because all of these things happened at the same time. Right. You know, so many crises happened at the same time that we have never had to deal with. That's why sometimes I, I'm, I'm forgiving of certain things. It's like, well, we never dealt with this before. Like you, you, the first time you play tennis, you don't know how to play tennis. Right. 
So um, it would be interesting to see how COVID impacted policing and policing it impacted rioting and, and how the whole Megilla kind of has. Well, worked. I would like to just know, uh, and I, I don't think you can answer this, but how did the police become the problem nationally? How did they become the problem when, to me, clearly they're not the problem, but they became the problem for government because politicians are not brave enough to look at themselves. Every violent city in this in this country has Democrats at the helm. Chicago, Detroit, now New York. New York was the safest large city in the, in the country. It's no longer. If you need to be angry, if, if you're getting your identity from being angry, you need to be angry at someone, right? So who are you going to be angry at? The guy at Baskin Robbins? You're going to be no, angry. I'm, I'm angry at Starbucks, Ben and Jerry's, uh, places that have activists as owners. That's where I will not spend but, my money there. But do you see what I'm saying? They need a target to be No, angry. absolutely. Yeah. And so one of the very, the like maybe the most obvious target in every city is someone that claims to have some dominion over your behavior, right? Right, right. Could it be when you're a little kid, it's your mother, right? Uh, or your teacher. Well, you get to be a young adult and it's the police. Now, of course, are there bad cops? Of course there's bad cops. There's bad restaurants. There's bad clothing manufacturers. <laughs> there's bad everything everywhere. There's bad firemen. They made that big bu buzzer oh, go off before. My God, that's right. Oh, I, well, I'm not you can't say anything bad about firemen. Can't say it. I could. Can't, I can't do it. But, um, they put out fires. You know? They put out fires. I live next door to a firehouse. <laughs> um, oh, did you see that story? Okay, we're going to digress for a second. Did you see that story? that the New York Post has been covering about two weeks ago about that that gang member that was beaten on the Yeah, street. I saw that, yeah. Guess what? I saw that. Wow. And I went down to go, I went down because the guy was being beaten and no one was helping him. And I ran downstairs and I opened my front door and this guy uh, is come running toward me, no, nothing from the waist down, so covered in blood, wow. like he looked like a can of red paint. And he says to me, help me. And then he spins around this guy in a wheelchair, homeless guy, and runs down the street. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and then um, and then I went back, and the cops were there, and I talked to them, and they interviewed me. He comes running back. Anyway, I saw that whole story. But what that was about something. They seemed to, that they, they knew him. They so knew him, I think. What they were saying was, what the, everybody in the street was shouting was, he robbed people on the bus, he robbed people on the bus. But as it turned out, he had arrived on the bus from Atlanta? I don't know. He was from Virginia someplace. And they were waiting for him. He was a gang member. And they, I, I, you've seen it. I knew that was about something just watching it. Cause there was too many people went after there were that like guy. 11 people jumped him. I have never, and you probably have, I have never seen outside of in the movies, something as, as savage as that. It was, it was, it was. That terrible. used to be a regular occurrence in Times Square in the eighties. It was, we used to call them Wolfpack robberies and they used to, oh, man. you know, 20, was, 30, 40 kids would attack, you know, a couple of people. You know? It was terrible. I, yeah. Anyway, so. I one time when I was working in street crime in 1988, this idiot was looking to buy drugs on the deuce at like five o'clock in the morning. He walks into a crowd and comes out naked. <laughs> they ripped every single thing yeah. his wallet, his pocket. I was like, look at this idiot. Right? And I, I made a collar. I grabbed the guy who had a piece of his sweater because I couldn't tell who did what, but this guy had a piece of his sweater. And he was it. He got, he got arrested for robbery. That's great. <laughs> well, Nancy, this was this fantastic. Great. I this mean, was we fun. could we could talk for hours and hours more. Let me just 
give another shout out to our um, live chat. Uh, 12 Step Woman, Joey Brooklyn, Vinny Flores, Heidi Lee. You guys are all I'm thank so thankful that you're uh, listening, watching. Peter Pranzo, and I know it's Richella's birthday tonight. Thanks for uh, listening. Peter Pranzo is a retired lieutenant, and him and his wife are uh, they're like attached at the hip. They don't go anywhere without each other. Two great people. And uh, he was on our show recently, uh, just the other night, last night, in fact. Uh, Brandon Shelton, Cat in the Hat, Lisa Hogan. And tonight, I believe, um, or tomorrow night, uh, Nancy Rommelman is going to be on Duty Ron's show at 10 o'clock. And I mean, if you didn't get enough of her tonight, I mean, she obviously got a lot of energy, you know, <laughs> she could talk. Oh, you know what I wanted to just very quickly ask you yeah. about? How about Barry Weiss? The oh, New York Times. My, my literally, I, I, I said this to someone the other day. If someone said, Nancy, you gotta walk through fire for Barry Weiss. I'd be like, I do it. I do it. This woman is so big hearted and so smart and so- Well, to tell all listeners who she is. Okay, so Barry Weiss um, was at the, she used to be at the Wall Street Journal. I write for the Wall Street Journal sometimes. She was an editor there, but we didn't meet till she was working at the, the New York Times at the opinion right. pages. Um, we became friends instantly from the first minute we met. And um, then she was sort of not liked at the times because she was considered um, too conservative, which she's really not. Uh, people were mad that she was writing a lot about Jewish subjects, like why they would be mad about that, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but they basically just didn't like her. And they didn't like her because she was charismatic and smart. And when the CNN cameras came in, they want to talk to her and she was accomplished and she was loving. And they basically made it very uncomfortable for her. And then... Well, you know, uh, Nancy, she just wrote an article the other day uh, on woke yesterday. culture in the, the Post. I thought it was great. I posted double, it on my site. I'm probably getting kicked print. off by uh, Mark Zuckerberg. I'll probably be banned, you know. Uh, she She's really... I think she's fighting the good fight as she walks the walk. Um, but you would think more journalists would be like you and her rather than they toe the line, you. you know? We, we, we would think so too, but it's not, I think, um, I have a friend who I'm going to name check here, Heather Hying, and uh, when I, I had my time in the barrel, my time in the cancel barrel, and she reached out to me and she said something that has proven completely true, I've said it a million times, it is that publicly, a few people will stand up for you, privately, a few more will, and most people will sit on the fence, Yeah. and wait to see which way the wind blows, and I think that you know, unfortunately, journalists are people. And they, um, whether it's because of that human nature aspect and, or we were talking previously about OANN, but let's say it's, you know, Vox or the Daily Beast, you've got your, you know what your marching orders are. Maybe they want to keep a job. Maybe they really believe it. Maybe they believe, really believe people like Barry and me are terrible people. And we're, you know, standing in the way of whatever progress they want to see. I don't know. You know, Nancy, there's a, like a parallel sort of on the police department. If you got in trouble on the police department, it was like you were a pariah. No one would talk to you. People would give you a wide berth. Then when you were cleared, everyone's like, oh, I knew you were okay. You know, oh, yeah. you're full of shit. Yeah, there Where were you when I had, I needed you, a friend, you know? When I, when I had my, my time in the barrel, Barry was the first person to reach out to me or one of them. And, you know, we, it's, it, it's what you have to do. You have to do it. And I, I, to me, it's the most normal thing in the world. Um, but you know, maybe it's not crazy. So um, I want to tell people if they're on Twitter, they can find me at, at Nancy Rom. That's with two. That Oh, yeah. Two, Nancy go. Rom with two M's. 
to the bridge. Uh, you can go follow Paloma Media on YouTube. Um, and I'd love to be in touch with you guys. Yeah. Nancy, you were a fantastic guest. I want to thank Duty Ron. And Duty Ron, I, I just gave you a uh, example of a great guest who you're going to have on tomorrow night. Do I, I need an agent, you know, to <laughs> I'm being Nancy's agent. You're getting the tips. You're getting the 50%. That's right. Oh, I also want to thank your good friend and my good friend, oh, yeah, yeah. Yael Bartor, for, you. Uh, yep. you know, turning you on yep. to me, you know, if yep. that's the proper word to that's say, right. you know. That's right. We used to, you used to say that when you smoked weed as a kid, right? Turn him on. I turned her, you know. <laughs> oh, I never did. Anything. I didn't either. Yeah. I, didn't, I had to pass the police drug test. I never did that. <laughs> right? But anyway, police off the cuff fans and real crime stories. This is Bill Cannon. I've been with this fantastic writer, Nancy Rommelman. And you see there's some hope out there for journalists yet. So everyone, good night. Nancy, thank you so much. Night. Thanks so much. Okay.